so the purpose of the marathon taper is to have you fresh and ready to race your best marathon you can. When you're in training, you're always going to be carrying some level of fatigue because you're putting in 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 miles a week, and your body is not able to recover from that in a day or two. So the taper and the taper, it's going to depend on kind of your fitness level and really what works for you, because sometimes a one week taper works for some people and a week and a half works for others and a two week taper works for others. And really, so you kind of have to experiment with what works best for you. If you're an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you're in the right place. Runner Click presents The Passionate Runner with your host, me, Whitney Hines. Hi, and welcome to episode 23 of The Passionate Runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I am a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of the motherrunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And today we are chatting with Todd Buckingham, an exercise physiologist and triathlon world champion. And oh, by the way, a 225 marathoner. We are going to chat about the marathon taper because I think a lot of you listening to this probably have a marathon a few weeks weeks away. So we're going to talk about how to figure out how long your taper should be, why you feel terrible during a taper, the science of a marathon taper, and do's and don'ts and common mistakes and all that. Some more about Todd. Todd Buckingham is the chief exercise physiologist at the Bucking Fit Life. He earned his PhD in kinesiology from Michigan State University. He is an expert in endurance performance. He is a four-time world champion sprint and Olympic distance triathlete, a 16-time national champion in multi-sport events, including the triathlon, duathlon, aquathon, and aquabike. He's a 108 half marathoner, a 225 marathoner, and he coaches athletes of all levels from beginners to professionals. We are going to chat all things Marathon Taper with Todd after this short message from our sponsor, RunnerClick. If you are an avid runner and looking for help to understand the science, simplify the complicated, and remove hurdles so that your next run is not only fun and fulfilling, but also fuels you with passion and purpose, then you are in the right place. RunnerClick presents The Passionate Runner with your host, Whitney Hines. We are here with Todd Buckingham. Todd, it is awesome to see you. We've emailed a lot over the years. You've been such a great resource to me for my website and for the other running websites that I write for. So glad to finally have you here to pick your brain. Yes, thanks so much for having me. I know, like you said, it's it's been a couple of years that we've been working together. So yeah, great to see you. Great to be here. Yeah, I first read your name in a Runner's World like print edition article. I think it was on the benefits of an elliptical or yeah. something like that. And I was like, oh, this guy knows his stuff. I need to add him. <laughs> I actually have the magazine right over here. Oh, so. do you really? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I was like, I need to add him to my Rolodex and start 
just pestering him with questions. And now I get yes, to please. do it here. Yeah, the podcast. great. Okay, so before we get to Marathon Taper, I was reading your athletic resume, and it is so impressive. So you triathlon, world champion, a 225 marathoner. So like, just, I mean, the world champion, like, that's amazing. But then obviously, as someone who's trying to like, run faster marathons, a 225 is just mind blowing. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. So I was a runner before I was a triathlete, but I was a baseball player before I was a runner. So I've kind of really? gone, yeah, yeah. I played baseball, basketball, and soccer in high school and never liked running. My dad has done over 50 marathons and ultras. My mom runs halves and I never wanted anything to do with running. So to be where I am today is nothing short of a miracle, if you ask them. <laughs> okay. I feel like that is very unique. Yeah, definitely. Especially baseball. There's not a lot of baseball players that cross over and become runners because there's not a lot no, of running involved no. in baseball. Yeah, it's, it's kind of opposite ends of the spectrum where baseball, you're running for maybe a couple of seconds at a time, sprinting to first base, or I played outfield, so running a ball down in the outfield. But yeah, now I'm running marathons and doing triathlons. So definitely took some time for me to transition my body from baseball build to marathon and triathlon build now. So yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. It's been... No, probably maybe about 10 years that I've been doing the running and triathlon now. So it's taken me a while. So how did, what sparked the transition? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> so when I finished playing baseball, my mom had signed our family up, the four of us, my brother, myself, and my parents signed us up for the Warrior Dash, which is a 5k mud run through the obstacle course type thing. And I was like, oh, I should probably be able to run a 5K before I can, I try to do it through the mud and obstacles. So I started running with some friends who were on the track because I played baseball in college too. I was running with some friends who were on the track and cross country team and struggling to keep up with them on their easy runs of seven or 7.30 pace. And here I am thinking I'm a college athlete, like I can do this. And I was so out of breath, even running a 7.30 pace for a couple of miles, not even for three miles. And then, yeah, within within a, a year maybe of starting running, I did I did a 5K, then I did a 10K, then I did a half, and I did a full. And I ran 240 for my first full, <laughs> which was pretty good. But yeah, I mean, it took me, that was 2013, I think. So it took me eight years to then run a 225. So I did that in Houston back in 2020. Oh, so it was seven years. So yeah, right before the pandemic was when I did that marathon. And that was my last marathon. I was trying to qualify for the trials. I was ask, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was out through the half on trial time. And then the wheels just fell off. And I just my legs didn't have it on the day. But the cool part was that I then got to pace the eventual women's winner for a while. And it was cool because like I got a lot of TV time because of that. And so who was it? I don't remember her name. She was from East Africa, okay. whether it was Kenya or Ethiopia, I don't remember. But it was so funny because the announcers, I had her tuck in behind me. I was like, you know, just run right behind me, draft, save your energy. And the announcers said something like, oh, yeah, and she's conserving energy because the guy she's running behind is so broad and tall. And for those of you who can't see me because we're on the podcast, I'm all of five, six, 130 pounds. Oh my so. God. I don't think broad and tall are two words that have ever been used to describe me. 
So that was kind of a little ego boost. I really appreciated that. But compared to her, who she was 5'1 and 100 pounds soaking wet, right. I guess 5'6, 130 is considered broad and tall. <laughs> I laughed at your first marathon time because it's like insane. I mean, a 240. So what was your training like for that? I'm just curious. Were you doing like 50 miles a week, some intensity or no, you're shaking your no, head? No. So I don't, I'm not a big mileage person because I do triathlon. So I supplement a lot of my run training with swim and bike. So I've only ever gone over 70 miles once. And that was at the beginning of the pandemic, because I was bored. And I was like, Oh, let's see how many miles I can run in a week. But typically, my training sticks right around 40 miles a week. No way. Yeah. Yep. So typically, like Mondays are just an easy 30 minute run. Tuesdays will be a tempo or interval type workout. Wednesdays will be another easy run. Thursdays will be a track run. Friday's day off, Saturday's long run, Sunday is maybe easy 20 minutes or something like that. So most of my training is very, very easy relative to me, right? Like 7.30 pace is my easy pace, but that's two and a half minutes per mile slower than my half marathon pace. Right. So that's one of the big things with training that I think a lot of people get wrong is they run their easy runs too fast. So I make sure to run really, really slow for me. And I mean, my heart rate gets maybe 135 for those easy runs. And my max heart rate is 190. So it's pretty low percentage of my maximum. And so just keeping it easy, because running is distance running is an aerobic sport. And to perform your best, you need to have the good aerobic base built. And you can't do that if you're pushing the envelope on your easy runs, because this is getting a little sciencey and nerdy. But when you run too hard, your body's not able to produce and develop new mitochondria, which if we all remember from high school science class, the powerhouse of the cell, that's where we use the oxygen to create energy. So if you're running too hard, the body doesn't produce those mitochondria to then be able to use the oxygen that we breathe in to produce energy aerobically. So keeping your easy runs easy is probably the most important thing that you can do for your training. I mean, I would rather have somebody just go and run a bunch of easy runs than do any type or amount of speed work. And obviously you have to run fast to be able to run fast in a race, but it's more important that you run slow on your easy days so you can run fast on your hard days. Yeah, totally. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast because I think it's probably the biggest mistake that runners make. And many people don't even realize that they're doing yeah. it because they just, when you start running, you think, oh, well, this is hard. And as you progress, you think, well, this it's supposed to continue to be hard. Right. And also, I mean, running easy is, it saves you from being injured. You can increase, safely increase the volume. Yeah. But I think you probably, I feel like you have to be the only person that has run a 225 marathon on 40 miles a week. Like that is just like, that's such an anomaly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, I do supplement a lot aerobically with swimming and biking. So I train probably 14 or 15 hours a week total, but maybe only four or five of that is running. The other 10 is from swimming and biking. So, you know, still a good cardiovascular base, but I always find that at the end of a marathon, my legs are the limiting factor more so than my cardiovascular system. That's what I was going to ask because you're missing out on the loading of the miles, Yeah, Yeah. And that's one thing that if I do try to go for the OTQ again, 
is that I will try to put in more and more miles. But now we also have the super shoes. We have the alpha flies now. So those will help also and maybe take some of that pain out of my legs near the later end stages of the race. So maybe I'll do a little bit more loading and the alpha flies and it'll help me get there. But I still have, I mean, 225. Now the trials standard is 218. So I have what, eight minutes, seven minutes to cut off on my time. Like, and that's huge. That's a, from a 533 per mile down to a 515 ish and 515. My half marathon pace is a 509, my PR. And so we're talking the trials qualifying time is just barely slower than my half marathon PR for twice the distance. So I will see if I try to go for it again. I might try to break 220 eventually, but to go 218 is just, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like now I know you said it took you like eight years to go from 240 to 225, but I feel like you have, I mean, it's quick success and then a lot of room to kind of experiment with your training as far as adding more volume of running. Yeah. And if I did want to just focus on running and kind of forget triathlon, I think I would become a much better runner, but I'm more of a triathlete than a runner at this point now. So I'm going to stick with that. It's been pretty good for me, as you mentioned before, the world championships and national championships. So it's interesting though, because I do short course triathlon, which means sprint and Olympic. So it takes me an hour or two. The Olympic distance is about a mile swim, 25 mile bike and a 10K run. But in road races, I am for running. I'm much more competitive at the half and full marathon distance because I don't have that top end speed of a 5K runner that can go 14 minutes or mid 14s. Like I think my PR is a just barely under 15 So if you did like the pacing calculator based on my half marathon and marathon PRs, my 5k PR should be 30 seconds per mile or 30, yeah, 30 seconds total slower than or faster than what it actually is. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah. I'm more of a long distance runner where I excel, but yeah, with triathlons, I like to do the short stuff because the long course triathlons just take way too long. I mean, it's yeah. absurd. Who wants to be out there for 10 hours doing a race? Goodness. Well, and then the training. I mean, if you're already training 14, 15 hours a week, yeah. I got to think you, you're going to have to go up quite a bit too. Right. And then it's kind of like another job. Because once you add in like the strength training and the prehab, rehab, all that stuff. Yeah. And we're like driving to the pool and yes. all of that stuff. I mean, yeah, it's definitely time consuming. I would say even right now with the training that I do, it's, it is a part-time job. It's 20 hours a week with training before and after time, getting ready, food prep, all of that strength training, as you mentioned. So yeah, recovery time. So yeah, it's definitely a part-time job. And then we have our families and our partners who are yeah. like, I really yep. wish you didn't have these goals sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, my <laughs> girlfriend is also very athletic. We actually just did a 70.3 triathlon, a half Ironman last weekend and she did it as well. So it's cool that we can actually do those things together. But yes, it's definitely different than when I was single because I would wake up first thing in the morning, do a workout, go to work, come home, do a workout, and then eat dinner and go to bed. And now it's like, okay, well, I got to cram in all of my workouts before I go into work so that then after work, I can spend time with her and her daughter and we can have dinner as a family and things like that. So it's definitely been an adjustment for me and trying to fit that in. I don't know how people who 
are married with several kids and they get in a hundred miles a week or something crazy like that. It's like, wow. I mean, wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Good for you. I like my sleep though. <laughs> yeah. No, when my kids were younger a couple of years ago and I was doing a hundred miles a week, it was in retrospect, I realized that it's what broke me that I was tired and just felt drained all the time. And I thought that that was normal. And now I realize that that is not normal. That was not the right for like we could, it was not sustainable. And our family, it just, I mean, it just wasn't good for my family. It wasn't good for me. And yeah. just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should. Oh, that's one of my favorite sayings. So I have athletes who I coach runners, triathletes, cyclists. And that's one of my favorite things. Just because you can run faster doesn't mean you should run faster in your training. Or just because you can do this race doesn't mean you should do this race. So yeah, that's definitely a good a good quote there. So Well, one thing that I thought about talking to you about, and maybe we can table it for another podcast, was finding like your magic mileage. Because I thought that this was normal to feel so drained all the time. But now I'm not running nearly as much. And like, I feel energetic and recovered and good to go for each workout. And as like, I think a lot of competitive athletes, and especially runners who kind of tend to think more is better. I'm like, well, how about why don't I just run a a few more extra miles here and there? And it's like, don't if it's not broken, don't try to fix it. Yeah, well, and that's why, as you mentioned earlier, you know, 40 miles a week, that's what I do. And so I'm still running super fast 15 minute 5k, a 68 minute half marathon, 225 marathon. So it's doable, you can run fast on low mileage, and it's okay. So I love that. Yeah. Because I, my goal is to get an Olympic trials qualifying time as well. And I know that a 100 mile And my life situation is different. Like my kids are older, sleep is more predictable, but I don't think 100 miles is good for me. I think 70, closer to 70 is like my sweet spot. But most of the women who are running those times are doing higher volume. So, And it's hard when you're playing the comparison game. Correct. Right? So it's extremely difficult. Strava, I think, is great in some aspects great but in some ways but comparison yeah other ways because you're always going out and oh i gotta crush this kom or qom or whatever it is and it was funny a friend of mine when i moved to grand rapids he was like oh you're gonna get so many koms in town and i'm like honestly i don't even pay attention to that stuff like i go do my workout if it so happens that i have mile repeats and it i pass a kom and i get the kom great but I'm not out actively hunting segments, No, at least not while I'm training in town. Now, if I go on a road trip somewhere, my dad and I went on a road trip out West a few years ago and in all the cities we stopped in, and this was my off season. So I wasn't doing any specific training, but I would just go and find some local segments and just destroy them so that (laughs) nobody in town had a chance to reclaim it. So it is fun. Like it motivates you to do a workout that you may not otherwise do, but it also then could potentially make you push harder than you should be yeah, pushing. Sabotage yourself. During, yeah. So yeah, that's what I, when I mentioned running those higher volume weeks broke me. I, people who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk about this. I was injured for about two years with a hamstring tear and then a plantar fascia tear. And so now that I resume, finally even back to healthy running this summer, like I post my workouts on Strava, but I do not look at other people's workouts because yeah, same. I, yeah, I just know for, yes, I want to cheer other people on, but for me, I just know that it's a dangerous trap 
that I can fall into to do that. So hundred percent. Yeah. I still can't Don't play the comparison game. Yeah. It, nothing good ever comes from it. Yeah. I always tell my athletes, just focus on comparing yourself to you. Don't compare yourself to anybody else because it doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. And that's why when I go to a race, I don't really care who else shows up. It's like, I know what I'm capable of and my training has prepared me for this race. I don't need to compare myself to anybody else. And if somebody else is going to beat me, great. They are really fit. Right. And that's good because those people can pull you along and make you better. And I think it's important to clarify to compare yourself to your current self and not look back at, oh, man, I was so fit before I got injured and look how far I have to climb out of the hole. Or before I had kids or anything like that. Yes, because it's... Running is constantly evolving because your life is constantly evolving. And it, I don't know, it feeds you and like propels you in different ways. And sometimes it's not to be competitive and you just want to do it to like feel good or have sanity or stress relief. So, right. Okay. So. Yes. Getting back on topic now or getting on topic since we haven't even started talking about it (laughs) yet. Well, I could talk to you. It sounds like we could talk for hours. Probably could. <laughs> so I'm going to see. We will not subject your listeners to right. that, though, because I don't think they want to hear us talk for another three hours. Unless they do. And then in that case, maybe we can just we'll have a special event. Well, yeah. Maybe <laughs> people are going to be listening to us during their peak long runs or something. Yeah. Or their marathon. So <laughs> The three-hour long run. Three, yeah, exactly. No, okay. I'm going to stay focused, and we're going to focus on the marathon taper because – It is so important, and I think a lot of people get it wrong, but also it is just like such a mentally trying time because you feel like you're not doing enough to prepare, but then you risk sabotaging yourself by doing too much, but then you also start to feel bad during that time because your body's recovering. So my first question to you is, can you tell us what the purpose of the marathon taper is? is and what it looks like? Yeah, so two-part question. So the purpose of the marathon taper is to have you fresh and ready to race your best marathon you can. When you're in training, you're always going to be carrying some level of fatigue because you're putting in 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 miles a week, and your body is not able to recover from that in a day or two. So the taper and the taper, it's going to depend on kind of your fitness level and really what works for you, because sometimes a one week taper works for some people and a week and a half works for others and a two week taper works for others. And really, so you kind of have to experiment with what works best for you. But personally, I like a one week taper. For me, that's what works for me. And I've had several years to experiment with that. But essentially, you're decreasing the volume or the mileage that you're running but still keeping some race pace intensity because the goal of the taper is to, as I said, help your body recover, but you also don't want to show up to the race flat. So you want your legs to still have some pop and not be extremely heavy. So that's why for me and and for my athletes who I prescribe workouts for, when you're doing the taper, it's very low volume. I don't think we run more than 45 minutes during race week from Monday to either Saturday or Sunday for race day, no more than 45 or 50 minute run. Most of it is pretty chill and pretty easy, but we'll have maybe a minute or two at marathon race pace, just so that you're dialing in that feel of 
marathon race pace. And so those intervals shouldn't be extremely difficult because it's two minutes at a pace you're going to hold for a couple of hours, but it's more about getting the feel for what is this pace going to feel like. So purpose of the taper is to get you to recover and be fresh for race day. And that's kind of what it looks like as far as mileage or time. I write my workouts more by time. I find that if you write workouts based on mileage, it's a lot easier to go too fast on those easy days. Because if I tell you, Whitney, I want you to go run three miles at an easy pace, you could run those three miles in 20 minutes, or you could run it in 30 minutes. But if I say, just go out for an easy 30 minute run, well, it doesn't matter how fast you run those 30 minutes, it's still going to be 30 minutes. So it's a lot easier, I feel, to keep the engine or keep the barometer low if you write workouts based on time rather than by mileage. So yeah, like I said, nothing really longer than 45 or 50 minutes during race week with a few race pace intervals thrown in there to keep your neuromuscular system firing as well. Yeah, I think a lot of people get are surprised by keeping the intensity in the week or two leading up to a marathon. So can you talk briefly about how that kind of keeps the pop in your legs? What's happening neuromuscularly when you're keeping part of that intensity in your training? Yeah, so you don't just want to run easy all the time because that's it's not going to cause the same neuromuscular reactions as running race pace. So you have, so I say neuromuscular, so we're not just talking about the nervous system and we're not just talking about the muscular system. It's an integration of the two. So when your muscle fibers are contracting, it's because they're being told to contract by the nerve fibers. So the way I like to kind of imagine it is your nerves are kind of like doing a maze to get to the muscles. So if you were to walk through, let's say a corn maze, here as we get into fall, you're going to go to the pumpkin patch and you're going to do a corn maze. Well, the first time you do the maze, it's probably going to take you a while to get through that maze. You're going to hit some dead ends and wrong turns, and eventually you're going to get to the other end. Well, the more and more times that you do the maze, the more efficient you're going to be. And eventually you're going to get to the point where you're just going straight through. So when your nerves are firing impulses to your muscles, it's kind of the same thing. So if you were to just run easy all the time and not activate the muscle fibers that are going to be active during the race, your nerves, when you get to the race, they're going to be sending those signals to maybe the wrong muscle fibers that then we don't need contracted or recruiting extra muscle fibers or not enough muscle fibers or not the right muscle fibers. So by keeping that race pace intensity during race week, we're still keeping that that maze that following the pathway through the maze, we're keeping that intact as opposed to, well, if we run slow, now we're doing a completely different maze and then we have to go back to the first maze and figure out how to do that again. So I guess that's the way I like to imagine it because it just helps to see in quotes what's happening to the muscles and the nerves. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. So physiologically, what is happening during the marathon taper? Good question. So from a physiological standpoint, your muscles are able to recover. So like I said, we always carry some level of fatigue. We've got different metabolic byproducts that are built up. We have damaged muscle fibers that have these microscopic tears in them. 
So when you taper, your muscles are actually able to recover and absorb the training. So the muscle fibers will repair themselves. There won't be any of those micro tears in the fibers going into the race. Your body can produce more mitochondria. It's not the mitochondria are not going to just magically appear during taper week, but allowing your muscles to repair. And this is also why you don't just want to keep building, building, building throughout your training. You should have a few weeks of build and then a recovery week so that your body can absorb the training because otherwise you're just going to kind of push yourself over the edge. So during that taper week, you're allowing your body to absorb all of the training that you've done for the last you know, 16 weeks or however many weeks your marathon training plan is and showing up fresh to the start line, meaning yeah, no tears in the muscle fibers. You're not carrying that stress because even so your heart, your heart carries stress too. Not like, Oh, you know, my poor heart is is broken, (laughs) that kind of stress, but your heart's a muscle just like every other muscle. Well, it's not just like every other muscle in your body, (laughs) but it is muscle muscle versus the skeletal muscle, but, or cardiac muscle versus the skeletal muscle or smooth muscle, but your heart kind of needs a break too. So really it's just allowing your body to recover and be fresh. It's kind of like a really good night's worth of sleep all week that you're allowing your body to recover and show up fresh for race day. And what about like hormone levels and stuff like that? Another good question. So your hormone levels are pretty tightly controlled, but the stress hormones when you're always pushing and pushing and pushing, and that's kind of part of the reason why when you get to overtraining or burnout, as some people call it, is that your hormone levels just cause you that you can't recover. And so you're always in a heightened state of stress. So when you're tapering, your body is able to get rid of some of those stress hormones because it's, you're not putting it through as much work as you were during the previous 16 weeks. So those stress hormones can come back down. Maybe you won't be able to sleep better because you're stressed about the race and stressed (laughs) about not doing enough. But yeah, your stress hormones are going to be decreased during that taper week as well. Okay, I want to get into like the different timelines of a taper. But before I do, this is something I've always wondered and I've never seen like a definitive answer. How long does it take for you to reap the benefits of a hard workout? And I'm asking this as far as when should you time your peak workout? Because when you're saying you have one week taper, I'm assuming that your peak marathon long run is not one week ahead of the actual marathon though, because right, like that doesn't give you enough time to see the benefits from that workout. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, this is one that I looked up maybe a week or two ago. And so it depends on the type of workout that you're doing. So a speed workout versus a hill workout versus a threshold workout versus a long run workout, they're all going to have different time frames from which you see the actual benefits. So if it's a speed workout, you're going to see those benefits maybe in one to three days. If it's a VO2 max workout or like hills, you might see that in two weeks. A threshold workout, it's probably going to be anywhere from seven days well, to 12 days, so maybe one to two weeks. But a long run, the benefits that you're going to see don't show up until four or five weeks later. Oh, wow. So that's why I typically like to target the last 
hard run a month out or the last hard long run. Now that doesn't mean that, so this is, we're talking about like physiological benefits of increasing mitochondria and capillaries and myoglobin in the muscle, but that's not really talking about the mental aspect, the mental aspect, practicing your nutrition, the pounding of your legs and the muscles and getting them used to the long run. But as far as physiological adaptations at the cellular level with the mitochondria and capillaries and myoglobin, that's going to take four to five, maybe even six weeks to occur. So that's not saying don't do any long runs less than a month out from your race, because I'll typically the weekend before I would maybe do an hour and a half, two weeks before I still might do 18 or 20 miler two weeks before. But just knowing that the purpose of this run is more to practice nutrition, hydration, get my legs used to the pounding, practice race day stuff, what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to eat, and not focusing so much on, okay, this is really going to help boost my cardiovascular right. fits. Yeah, I typically, and my coach typically has us do like a half marathon four to six weeks out as like a tune-up. And then he may add like some miles before or after too. So that makes sense, that timing of that. So when you're looking at your athlete's schedules, how are you determining who is going to do better with a one-week, two-week, three-week taper? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah, for those of you, I'm, I'm just shrugging. Well, I, you mean, know? I feel like there are some guidelines like, okay, if you're a low-mileage runner, then maybe – you can fill in the blank like this one week taper or two week taper would be better for you if you're higher volume, like, or you are more experienced. Yeah. What are those factors yeah. you look at? So I would say that if you are a newer runner or a beginning runner, then you might need a little more of a taper than someone who's more experienced. But then at the same time, if you're a low mileage person, then you probably don't need a two week taper. For some of my athletes, they're not doing more than like 30 or 40 miles a week. And so to do a two week taper doesn't really make sense because, well, the first week then we're going to do 20 to 25 miles. And then the second week we're going to do 10 to 15 miles. Like that's hardly anything. And so, whereas if you're a high mileage athlete, if you're doing a hundred miles a week, okay. So the first week you drop down to 80 and then the second week you drop down to 50 or 60, maybe even less like, okay, well that it's more doable to do a double, a two week taper, or even a three week taper. If your starting mileage is a lot higher. So it really depends. And that's another one of my favorite sayings is it depends <laughs> the beginning runners. If you're doing a little bit higher mileage, you could do a two week taper. If you're doing low mileage or you're experienced, you could do a one week taper. If you're doing a lot of mileage you could do a two or even a three week taper, depending on how high that mileage is. So there's a lot of nuance that goes into it, which is why it's so important that I think, and I'm sure you think as well, like having a coach who knows what they're talking about can say, okay, well, you're only doing 25 miles a week. So we're just going to do a one week taper here and you're going to run 12 miles before the race. And then you're going to run the race or Whitney, you're running 70 miles a week. So we're going to have you do we're going to do a two week taper. We're going to drop down to 50 week one, and then we're going to drop down to 30 the second week. And then we're going to do the marathon. So you so, do like 
you cut, if it's a two-week taper, you do like 80% of the volume and then about 50% then plus the race. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Somewhere around there. It kind of depends. And again, it depends. There's a range. (laughs) So yeah, but typically about 50% of peak mileage. But again, that depends because I probably wouldn't have somebody who's running 100 miles a week, maybe even still run 50 miles the week before doing the marathon. Right. So yeah, because then that's still a 75 or 76.2 mile week for them. So I might even drop them down to 35 or 40 miles before the race. Because that's still, I mean, if you're thinking five days of running before the marathon, so that's seven miles a day at 35, which is still pretty substantial. So if somebody's listening to this, trying to figure out on their own, they don't have a running coach, like, how do I know if I'm doing taper right or reflecting on past marathons? How do you know if you did it right? Like there are just so many factors in a marathon performance. What should you be looking for and knowing that, okay, this, my legs, I guess like you're just focusing on if you have energy and your legs feel fresh, that's how you know you tapered the right amount? Well, unfortunately, you're probably not going to know if you tapered correctly until after the race. Right. And you might not even know directly after that race because it's more about building your body of evidence. So if you have a good race where you tapered one way and then you have a better race tapering another way and a worse race tapering another way, you really kind of have to put all of those pieces together. And I know that nobody likes to hear that where it's like, it was just kind of trial and error, but it kind of is. So there are things that me as a coach can do to minimize some of that trial and error, but it's still trial and error with every athlete's different. So yeah, I mean, I guess a couple of things you should be getting to the race, feeling good, feeling refreshed and rested. But I know a lot of people end up during taper week going crazy. We were talking before we got on the, you know, the temper or the taper tantrums and just kind of going crazy with not doing the mileage. And I think that is more of a mental battle than anything. And so you really, that week need to give your legs and your brain just kind of a reset, mental reset, physical reset, where you're not overdoing it. And I'm not just talking about running, but other aspects of life too, because stress is stress. The body can't tell whether it's physical, mental, emotional stress. It all affects the body the same way and causes the release of those stress hormones that we were talking about earlier. So if you're not taking care of your body and mind before the race, the body is going to react the same way as if you were to have run a high mileage week, if you're not taking care of the mental aspect as well. So I guess like a general rule of thumb, like the standard taper timeline is two weeks, cut 80% and then 50%. And then like, so if you're doing your first marathon and you're running like 40, 50 miles a week, that might be a good starting point and then assessing after how you felt. Yeah. So if you're running, like you said, 40 miles a week, then that first week you would drop down to just over 30, 32 maybe. And then the next week would be 20 before the race. So yeah, it's a good that, like you said, the 80, 50 rule. Yeah. In quotes. Sorry. I do. I talk a lot with my hands and I realize that people on the podcast can't see that. So I apologize. Yeah. Rule in quotes. 
not really a rule, but yeah, 80% the first week, 50% the second week. But again, it kind of depends on your mileage, your experience and things like that. And that's why it's important to hire a coach. Right. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Or they can just reach out and say, Hey, Todd, this is the kind of thing that I did for, or I'm planning to do for my taper. Cause I do consultations where I can take a look at things and be like, Oh, well, you know, I might do this, that, or the other thing. And so even if you have somebody in your life that can do that for you would be helpful. Somebody who is going to say somebody who has done a marathon before, but just because you've done one doesn't mean that you exactly know what you're talking about. So talking to somebody who is reputable and professional, because yes, while I have done a lot of marathons and I've run fast, that doesn't necessarily just make me qualified to speak on marathons and running fast. Uh, I also have a PhD in exercise physiology and I teach (laughs) teach undergraduate (laughs) classes. And so I feel like that makes me more qualified than my running background. But because most people just introduce me as, oh yeah, Todd, the runner, he's fast, whatever. Even my boss at my last job, would introduce me as, oh yeah, here's Todd. He's a world champion triathlete. And I'm like, well, but my diploma's right up on the wall there. And like, <laughs> I have a PhD too. I studied this stuff in for 11 years in college and now I teach it in college. So I mean, you can make the argument that you are so fast because of the knowledge that- Exactly. Yeah. It is, honestly. So I, I did my dissertation on performance and triathletes. So the dissertation is like a thesis- but at doctorate level. So I did my dissertation on performance in triathletes because I wanted to learn how to be a better triathlete. And I figured, why not study this? Right. It was a very self-serving <laughs> study. So, But yeah, I mean, finding somebody who you can talk to and maybe even run the idea by if you're coaching yourself or if you just have a plan that you're following, like, oh, this seems like a lot of mileage the week before the race, or this seems like not a lot of mileage the week before a race. Like I said, contact me. We can set up a consultation, contact a friend of yours who you trust and who's experienced just to ask them about it and see what they think. Yeah. I actually just had a couple of new athletes who reached out to me last week who just want help with like the last six weeks of their training. Yeah. Just like, I am afraid of messing up this marathon taper. I want to get to mistakes and do's and don'ts and all that. But before I do, let's talk about why so many of us feel terrible when we taper. I mean, you get sick, you have all these like injuries or you think they're injuries, aches and pains crop up. So what's why? It's just, it's just completely messing with our minds when we're about to endure several hours of hard running. Yeah. The body is amazing and it is very used to structure and doing the same thing. So if you throw something different at it, it's going to respond like something is wrong. What's going on? We need to fix this. And so that's part of it. But another part of it is that you're also allowing it the opportunity to recover And so you might feel some twinges and aches and pains and spots that you didn't even know were aching and paining because you're always running and pushing through everything and the aches and pains aren't there because you're suffering through a run or something like that. So when you're tapering and you're not doing as much, you become more acutely aware of what's going on with your body because you have all of this free time now to pay attention and listen to your body. So part of it is that you have the time, you're focusing more on things. A part of it is that it's just your body repairing and rebuilding all of the aches and pains. And then part of it is, yeah, it must not have been that important of a thing (laughs) if I said it and don't remember it now. 
just rewind about 15, 20 seconds and you can hear what that was that I said first. Yeah, blanking now. Yeah, so we're pairing, but we're also super aware of what's happening. And you were saying that we're finally giving our body the time to fix and the homeostasis is is messed up. That's what it was. Yeah, the structure, the body craves consistency. And so when you take that away, then it kind of gets thrown out of whack. And so... Yeah, I try to tell myself like these little aches and pains. And this is the same when I was returning to running and I'd have little aches and pains. Like this is just like a little weak spot. And this is the process of my body building it back, getting stronger. I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's what I'm serving myself and trying to believe it so I don't freak out. So how? what's your recommendation for people who do freak out about not doing enough and they fear that they're losing their fitness or their legs are going to feel flat because they're not running enough on race day? Well, the good news is that you won't lose fitness that quickly. If you were to absolute, do absolutely nothing for the entire week, your fitness level, your VO2 max, if you just sat down and did nothing all day long, your VO2 max would decrease by maybe about uh, 7 to 10% in a week. But that's with doing absolutely nothing. So the goal of the taper week is not to gain any more fitness. You're not going to gain any more fitness. Like we talked about, it takes four to six weeks for your body to produce those adaptations for the, from the long run. So you're not going to be building any fitness that taper week. The taper week is just maintaining the fitness, but giving your body a rest. So if you're worried about losing fitness, it's not going to happen unless you just sit on your butt all day long and do nothing, but we're still going to be running that week. And even just doing a few days of running, even not at race pace, it's going to maintain your cardiovascular fitness, your aerobic fitness levels, that VO2 max. But that's why we keep that race pace intensity in there so that we don't feel flat on race day. If anything, you should enjoy the time that you get to sit on your butt and watch TV and have the extra helping of pasta because you're carb loading, right? So you won't be losing any fitness. And it's I can't overemphasize the fact how important relaxing, not just your body, but your mind also race week is going to have a positive influence on your race. Yeah, doing some race visualization and mindfulness and meditation and all that. Now is a good time to do that. So I also would like to touch on mistakes because there are mistakes that people can make. Oh, before I do, there has been research though, right? About like super compensation effects that in over the period of two weeks taper, people show up at the marathon and they end up, you know, their fitness has increased like, I don't know, like two to 5% or something like that, which can make a big difference in your marathon time. Have you read about that? I have not read that research. Okay. That would be interesting. And so it depends what they're measuring when they're talking about increasing in fitness, because if you're measuring it, I'm assuming as like aerobic endurance performance. So VO2 max is based on how many milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight per minute you can use. And so if you lost weight in the last week or two, even if you're the amount of oxygen that you're bringing in isn't increasing, if your weight is decreasing, that VO2 max, that aerobic fitness level is going to go up because it's just a ratio of how much oxygen you're bringing in divided by how much you weigh. So if you're lighter, it's going to lead to, quotes improved 
fitness. Now, if they're actually bringing in extra or if they're actually using extra oxygen from the air that we're breathing in, that could be because so the long run four to six weeks that you'll see benefits, but threshold runs, VO2 max runs, those can happen, like I said, one to two weeks. So we still might see improvements in VO2 max because we're doing those VO2 max workouts or the hill workouts, but the long runs are the ones that are going to be taking longer. So I would say, yeah, we could see an improvement in fitness in those last couple of weeks if you're doing those kind of workouts still, which you should be. Let me, I'll see if I can find that study, but yeah, I mean. I love reading that stuff too. It's like, you know, I nerd out on this. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that is what you studied. It is my job. It is your job. Okay. So I want to kind of wrap up with some do's and don'ts of the marathon taper. So what are some don'ts? What are some common mistakes people make? Don't overdo it. I think that's probably the biggest mistake. One of the biggest is walking around for an hour or two at the marathon expo the day before and checking out all the new things. This happened this past weekend. My girlfriend and I did the Ironman 70.3 in Michigan, in Frankfurt, Michigan here. And I wasn't there yet. She and her family had gone up earlier and I had come up afterward because I actually raced the day before. I raced on Saturday morning here in Grand Rapids at a local sprint try. And then I drove up to Frankfurt that Saturday night to then do the race on Sunday morning. But before I got there, my girlfriend had sent me a text and said, Hey, I think we're going to go walk around the expo for a while and check things out. I said, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. (laughs) You are going to be spending six to seven hours out on the course tomorrow. And you want your legs to be as fresh as possible. Why are you going to walk around the marathon expo in the sun, in the heat and doing all of these things when you could just be sitting at the house, kicking your feet up and watching TV. And she was like, well, you know, we're just getting antsy and just all this extra energy and we just need to get it out. I'm like, well, just don't just lay there. Like it's not going to help get the extra energy out by walking around the marathon expo. And even if it does get the extra energy out, then you're not going to have that extra energy for the race tomorrow. So a big mistake that people make is doing too much on race week and the day before the race, walking around the marathon expo for too long. I mean, I spend as little time as possible there so that I'm in and out and I'm back at home so that I can just kick my feet up and relax. So that is probably the biggest don't that I would have for people. And so the biggest do is to rest and to make sure you focus on your nutrition and relax as much as you can, calm the mind. Any other tips that you have for people in nailing their marathon taper? Making sure that you're still adding in some race pace efforts. It shouldn't be extremely taxing. It shouldn't be digging yourself a hole that you can't get out of. It's a marathon race pace effort. It's not that hard for a couple of minutes. It shouldn't be that hard. So yeah, still doing that so that you're showing up to the race fresh and not flat. But yeah, as you mentioned, nailing your nutrition, your hydration, making sure that hydrating before the race, you're not just drinking water, that you're also drinking some electrolytes with that because otherwise you're going to throw your body's fluid balance out of whack. I actually just got off the phone with the consult. They're doing Ironman Maryland tomorrow. And so they were wondering about fluid and intake and they said, okay, so I should just take all of this sodium. And I said, no, 
the purpose of drinking the electrolytes and the sodium is to help the body retain the water. So you have to drink the water for the sodium to have an effect, but you can't just drink water because then it's going to dilute the sodium levels from your blood. And that's actually what causes you to retain that water. And it's okay if you show up to the race a few pounds heavier than you have been with your training. Yeah, it's actually like good. if you carb load or if you overhydrate or not overhydrate, but if you hydrate adequately, because if you carb load, each gram of carbohydrate that your body stores is going to be associated with three grams of water. And so if you have more carbs on board, you're going to have more water weight. And if you drink adequately and with the sodium, your body's going to be holding on to more water. But that's a good thing because then a few things, it's going to take you longer to get dehydrated, but it's also going to make your blood thinner. So if you have more water, your body stores water in your blood. So the blood is composed of the red blood cells, but then also plasma. And plasma is the liquidy substance that transports the red blood cells to the muscles. And so if you have more blood plasma, that liquidy watery substance, if you have more of that, it's going to be easier to pump the red blood cells to your muscles. And what happens when you get dehydrated is that you run out of that plasma. So it's more red blood cells and it's just more concentrated. So it's harder for your heart to pump that blood to those muscles. So yeah, making sure that you're nailing that hydration and it's okay if you show up, like I said, a few pounds heavier because it's probably just water weight and chances are you're going to end up losing a good chunk of weight during the marathon because you're probably not going to be drinking everything that you're losing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't freak out about last minute weight gain. Yeah. That was another thing I did want to mention because that messes with people's minds too. But if you are gaining weight, to me, I like to say, again, this is something that I tell myself, like this, that means that the taper is working. You're retaining that fluid. You're stocking those glycogen stores. 100%. It's a good thing. Yep. It'll help you recover faster too, right? Yep, definitely. So what's next for you? What are you going to be trying to do a marathon anytime soon and get close to that 217.59? (laughs) That's a good question. You know, I'm done with triathlons for the year. So the 70.3 this past weekend was the end of tri season because in Michigan here now it's getting kind of cold and the water is just going to be too cold for us to swim in. But I'm probably going to do a local half marathon next month and try to dip under the 68 minute mark. So I'm hoping to go 107 something, but no marathons on the schedule just yet, but we'll see. Maybe I'll dabble with something at the end of next year because it's just interesting or it depends on where the world championships fall with triathlon. So this year they were in June and then they're again in November. So that's just a really long season for me anyway. And I, I mean, I don't, I train year round. So it's not like I'm taking a month off completely of training or anything, but just to be racing from, and actually I started racing in May with a half marathon. So May to October is just a long race season and I just kind of need a break. So if the world championships are earlier or later, then I might be able to start earlier or later and then kind of do a fall marathon. I like the fall marathons better than the spring, at least here in Michigan, because yeah, it's cold. Well, the fall is a little more predictable in that, okay, well, it's probably going to be cold, but it's probably not, not going to be snowing yet or raining. Whereas the spring in early May or late April, it could be snowing, raining, sleeting, cold, windy, hot, rainy, like who knows? So the fall is my preferred time to do marathon running, but no plans to do one this year. But 
maybe if my girlfriend talks me into doing one, that's probably what will get me to do my next one. Well, you have a half marathon on the book. So I mean, yeah. I can scratch the itch. But yeah, I think fall running is the best thing in the world. I love it so, so much. Great. If there is a place somewhere where fall lasts for like six months, I would live there. It's my sign me up. I'm with you. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much of your knowledge with us. And I really loved getting to know more about you and your running background and all that. So we'll have I definitely want to have you back on because I mean, there's I had like a long list of topics that I wanted to discuss with you. But I just thought the timing of the marathon taper was good for right now because lots of people are probably gearing up for those fall races. Yeah, I'll be happy to be back anytime you'll have me. All right. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Whitney. Thank you, Todd, and thanks to you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any of the resources mentioned are available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from the episodes, please leave a reading and review at ratethispodcast.com slash thepassionaterunner. We'll be reading these out on future episodes. Talk to you next time. Thank you.